listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Hudson Taylor, who maybe I've talked about before, but I do love Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China, um, but I wanted to tell a story about him prior to he, before the time he went to China. Um, he was a doctor in training, and he uh, was living in England, and he one night happened to run into um, a very poor woman from his church community. And she begged him to come to her house because her family was very, very sick. Um, and they were also very poor. Uh, so he went to their house, and they clearly they hadn't eaten in a long time. They didn't have adequate clothing. Um, and he himself had a half crown in his pocket. Um, and a half crown was a little tiny bit of money, and it was all the money he had in the world at that moment. And he was going to use it to buy breakfast for himself the next morning. And after that, he didn't know what he was going to do. Um, so he felt that he should give them the half crown, but he didn't want to give them the half crown because he was very worried about what he would do the next day. So he decided, he told them that he would pray for them, and he started praying, and he addressed God as Father. And as soon as he did that, he heard a voice, um, he heard it himself, uh, that said, how dare you call me Father with that half crown in your pocket? Um, and immediately he realized that what God meant was, you don't get to call me father unless you trust me completely. Um, how dare you call me father with that half crown in your pocket? And so he stopped praying. He took out the half crown. He gave it to the family. And then he felt this total freedom to pray to God. Uh, and he went away that night uh, very happy and very, very poor. Um, and when he was a missionary in China years later, he always remembered that story as a sign that he could trust God completely. And I think Brian's going to read the scripture today. The scripture today is Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. All right. Uh, can we stand if you are able? Just for a moment, just for a little exercise here. We don't, we don't have to get any steps in or anything, but you've heard the word of the Lord. Uh, so now it's time for a little pop quiz, and I'm kind of in coaching mode still right now. So, so Life Church, where does your help come from? The Lord. Where does your help come from? So Life Church, does your help come from your bank accounts? No. Does your help come from a political party? No. Does your help come from your career? Does your help come from any other person not named Jesus? That's right. You passed the quiz. Where does your help come from? All right, good. You can have a seat. That's all we're talking about today. Just such a simple, simple lesson. Where does your help come from? 
And sometimes these simple messages are the hardest ones to get down into our hearts, aren't they? I mean, don't you find that frustrating sometimes about Christianity that most of the time it's not new information we need, it's the ability to live it out, the things that we already know to be true. And this, this text, this truth is really, really simple to understand, but very, very difficult to apply, just like we heard with Hudson Taylor. I mean, how difficult is that to apply to your life? So let's just start by praying because um, there's nothing I can say, honestly, to help that happen. But this is, we're dependent on the Holy Spirit to say, I'm going to make the application in your life. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to speak to you. So let's go to the Lord and pray and ask him to help us understand that he's our helper. Holy Spirit, simple lesson before us today, but oh, how difficult to apply. Would you come and would you illuminate our hearts and our minds? Would you cause our hearts to grab a hold of this truth like it never has before, that you and you alone can help us? It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Psalm 121 is an all-time favorite for lots of people. It's an immensely comforting psalm. And you'll notice if you're reading the beginning of it um, that it's one of 15 psalms that starts with this superscription, a psalm of ascent. So this is one of the songs that Jewish pilgrims would sing on their way up to Jerusalem. They would have to go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the city on a hill. It was the city on Mount Zion. And so they would be traveling uh, for probably one of three great festivals, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And I just want you to picture this. There's a traveler, and they're going up for one of these great feasts. And they're, go they're lifting their eyes to the hills as they look to Jerusalem. And they're saying, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who is in his temple in Jerusalem. That's where my help comes from. And so this uh, psalm is the meditations of one of these travelers, one of these pilgrims. And on this meditation, the psalmist confesses his need for help and the nature of that help. Those are the two things we're looking at. Very simple outline. The need for his help and the nature of that help. So here we go. Two things. First of all, the need for help. Verse 1 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? The psalmist is assuming his need for help right out of the gate here in the first verse. And this reminds us that we all need help. We're all desperately in need of help, whether we think so at the moment or not. And that help has to come from outside of us. It's not something that we can kind of drum up from inside of us. Notice the psalmist doesn't have any illusions that he's somehow going to provide his own help. He needs help, and it's got to come from the outside. And this message is terribly unpopular amongst independent, self-reliant Americans, right? I mean, what do you mean we can't help ourselves? Like, that's just, that's silly. Of course we can help ourselves. Of course we can take care of ourselves. Of course we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. I mean, doesn't that just make you bristle a little bit? It does me. Of course I can help myself. We'd much rather prefer the, the words of William Henley in his poem Invictus. Listen to this. This is just American to the core, isn't it? Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. 
I am the captain of my soul. Ah, yes, we say, that's a little more like it, right? That's what we like, invictus, which means unconquerable or undefeated in the Latin. And the poem was written by Henley, actually. He was suffering from um, tuberculosis of the bone. So he's in the hospital, uh, which is also called Potts disease. And he had just had his foot amputated from the disease. So this is a poem written by a guy in the face of death. He was a young man. had had the disease since he was very young as a child. And it's inspiring, honestly. It's, it's a really great sounding poem, but there's one big problem with it. It's not true. It's just not true. It's not conveying reality. It's a pipe dream. Now, Psalm 121, that's the real deal. We all desperately need help. We are weak and helpless in so many ways, but especially spiritually. I mean, we're anything but the masters of our own fate. We're anything but the captains of our own soul. I mean, just think about it with me for a moment. We need only go to what happened to Henley. Well, he died. At age 53, his unconquerable soul died. He couldn't captain his own ship out of death. He couldn't help himself. He was utterly incapable. So the psalmist has much more clarity than Henley did. This this psalm is reflecting the truth. It says, I need help. Where am I going to get that help from? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where's my help going to come from? It's going to come from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's his conclusion. That's his answer back to himself. And that should be our answer as well. So that's the start. He recognizes his need for help right out of the gate. But having stated that, he goes on to describe the nature of that help, which brings us to point number two, the nature of the help. In other words, what does the help that we get from the Lord look like? What's it going to feel like? What's it going to look like? Well, according to the psalmist, it's all wrapped up into one big Hebrew word called shamar, which means keeper. And we see that in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 7, verse 8. It's over and over. The Lord's going to keep you. He's your keeper. It's the same exact Hebrew word, but it has this big semantic range. It can mean a lot of different things. So we're going to look at four different meanings of this word shamar and how, that, um, how that's seen here to be our, how God is seen to be our keeper. First of all, God is our keeper in that he's our foundation. Look at verse 3. He will not allow your foot to be moved. You will not allow your foot to be moved. He's your keeper. He's your shamar. So we just had a recent reminder of this, that even though the earth can feel like a solid foundation, it moves. It shifts, right? What a horrifying, horrifying week it was for those in Syria and Turkey as they realized yet again that the earth moves, it shifts, and there is absolutely nothing we can do as humans to make our foundation more sure right? There's nothing we can do. We're completely out of control. God, however, is a foundation that we can stand on who will not be moved, and therefore he will not let your foot be moved. He's your sure foundation. He's the rock of our salvation, the Bible calls it. So I'm wondering this morning, what's the foundation of your life? What's the thing that your life is built upon? Is it shaky? Is it sturdy? Is it, is it prone to crumbling and falling apart? See, since the beginning of time, human beings have been searching for other foundations other than God to build their lives upon, flimsy things, looking for more security, and it just never, ever works. Some, found, some common foundations that we turn to, well, obviously wealth and possessions, which is so interesting that, you know, Christina talked about that with 
Hudson Taylor. But wealth and possessions is a big one for us, right? And the Bible's warning us over and over again, don't make that your foundation. Don't build your life upon that. It's flimsy. Um, Luke 12 has a man who built his life on this foundation. And he, you know, gets all this wealth and stores it up in bigger barns. Says, I'm going to build bigger barns, tear down my old barns, build bigger barns. And I'm going to sit around and, and lay around and just, and just enjoy life, eat, drink, and be merry. And then the text says, you fool. This very night, your life is going to be demanded of you. Who then is going to get all that you've worked for? It's like, whoops, I didn't think about that. I could die today, and I can't take a penny of it with me. A really, really poor foundation. Wealth and, and, and possessions are a flimsy foundation. They're not a good keeper. They're a very little help when you need it most. Think about physical fitness and strength as a foundation. Now, while exercising and taking care of our bodies is a really important thing, and I'm a big proponent of it, it's a great discipline. It's also no foundation, and it's not a guarantee of anything in your life. Um, how many of you remember the show Biggest Loser? I'm, I'm not aware that it's on anymore, but um, Ginny and I used to watch this, and Bob Harper was one of the trainers on this show, and super fit guy, um, really inspiring, uh, eating perfectly clean, and teaching other people to do it. He's like one of the coaches of coaches, right? Well, in 2017, I believe while he was still conducting the show, he had a heart attack. And I remember reading this in the news like, wait, Bob Harper, trainer, had a heart attack? How is that possible? I mean, if, and I remember thinking like, if Bob Harper can have a heart attack, I could have a heart attack. Like anybody could have a heart attack. It doesn't matter how fit you are, you could have a heart attack. And I mean, obviously there's certain things that you can do to help avoid a heart attack, but there is absolutely nothing in your power to make sure you never have a heart attack. Just ask Bob Harper. All of us are just a moment away from death at all times. Your health is far from guaranteed. It's not a solid foundation. Plus, even the most healthy, the most diligent of people, they can add only so many years to their life by being healthy, and then what? Going to die like everybody else. It's a bad foundation. Think about the foundations of relationships. You know, I think oftentimes we say, if I just had the right person in my life, then my life would be solid. Then it would have the meaning that I'm looking for. Um, and we often talk about like a best friend or a spouse, someone like that, as our rock, right? You hear people talk about that? Like, oh, that person, they're just, they're my rock. And that's okay. Like, the Bible celebrates marriage and good friendships and all those kinds of things. Those are a wonderful gift from God. But at the same time, they're a horrible foundation to build your life on. I mean, most of us know, right? Someone who has a really close, intimate marriage and boom, one of them dies tragically suddenly and it's, they're gone. Or you have a best friend that you do everything with, and all of a sudden that person drops dead. And then what? Like, what, where do you run for help when the foundation of your life crumbles? Relationships are a poor foundation to build your life on. And then think about politics. And I'm picking on this one today because I'm actually hoping to really move us this year away from politics and politicians being the foundation that we build our lives upon. As we look on the horizon, it looks like 2024 could be another crazy election year. And we saw, right, in 2020 that lots of people, including many Christians, had built their lives on this foundation that says, look, if the right party maintains control of the government, then we got a solid foundation. Then we've got a good future ahead of us, right? No, terrible idea to build your life on any foundation of any political party or political leader, any person not named Jesus. He's the only sure foundation. He's the only place we look to for our help. 
So God is our keeper in that he's our immovable foundation. He won't let your foot be moved. That's the first meaning of keeper. But he's also our keeper in that he's our watch guard. Look at verse 4. And actually the last half of verse 3, it says, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, I, I don't know if any of you have ever had a bodyguard before. I never have. Uh, not that important. But I, I think all of us have been in places that have had police officers or guards of some sort. And there's lots of things that go into being a good guard or a good um, officer. But one of the main things is you have to be able to stay awake. Right? Could we not say, like, that's a really baseline requirement of being a good watch guard or being a good officer? You have to be able to stay awake and alert. Because, I mean, think of all the movies. When do the heists, heists happen? Well, they happen at night when the guard is snoozing, right? And um, it can be really easy for, I mean, this is one of the main vulner, vulnerabilities that affects humans is just drowsiness, just sleepiness. The cameras all look fine. Nothing's happening. It's two in the morning. One little nap's not going to hurt anything, Right? Well, that's just when that's just when that awful thing happens. And the scripture is saying that never happens to God. He never gets drowsy. He never snoozes on the job. He's always watching. He knows our every movement. His eye is always upon us. Now, we talked about this back when we looked at Psalm 91, which is also a psalm of immense comfort and safety under the wings of God's protection, right? We said, look, these psalms of protection cannot possibly mean God is saying, if you're my, if you're my um, son or daughter, I'm not going to let anything bad happen to you, right? It can't mean that because in Psalm 91, it says, I will be with him in trouble. This psalm says, where does my help come from? Why do you need help if you're never in trouble? Like that, he wouldn't be asking for help. He wouldn't say, where's my help come from? He's saying, I don't need any help. Let's just stop talking about it. Right? So we know that the promise of these psalms is not that God's not going to let anything bad happen to you. The promise is that God is going to be with you through it, that he sees you in the midst of it. And that might not sound super comforting at first, but in the long run, it really is. Um, I was reading Brother Lawrence with the staff this week, and he has some really good thoughts on this. He writes, God knows best what we need. All that he does is for our good, much like Jack's prayer today. If we knew how much he loves us, we would always be ready to receive both the bitter and the sweet from his hand. It would make no difference. All that came from him would be pleasing. The worst afflictions only appear intolerable if we see them in the wrong light. When we see them as coming from the hand of God and know that it is our loving Father who humbles and distresses us, our sufferings lose their bitterness and even become a source of consolation. Oh, that's a different perspective, isn't it? Our sufferings can even become a consolation. As long as we see them coming from God's hand, it's like, okay, I know he's with me. I know he's in this. He hasn't left me. So no matter what you're going through, friends, the truth of this passage is God is watching. He's not sleeping. He's not drowsy. He's not out of it. He is, he is mindful of literally everything that is going on in your life. He's aware of it. He's your keeper in that, in that he's your watch guard. So we've seen he's our, our keeper in that he's our foundation. He's your keeper in that he's your watch guard. But third, he's our keeper in that he's our protector. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. So in Israel, imagine this is the same now, but especially back then, 
uh, the sun was a real danger. You know, especially when the Israelites were out wandering in the wilderness, if they were without water for a while, the sun was actually a real threat to people's lives. Like, it was hot desert climate. And so, um, to be sun, to have sunstroke or heat stroke was a really big danger. And the psalmist is saying, God is a shade in the midst of that scorching sun and heat. He shields us from the sun's harmful rays and refreshes our souls. Now, notice again, the, the, the idea of the protection here is not, he won't let any scorching heat times come in your life. No, he very much will. You will face times of scorching heat. The sun will, the, the, the heat, your life will heat up in so many ways, but you won't wither. He won't let you die in the midst of that. He's going to be your source of refreshment. He's going to be your source of renewal. And friends, I can tell you, you all have proven to me that this is true. You know, one of the great privileges of being a pastor and one of the great pains um, and, and agonies is having to walk through so much suffering and grief and difficulty with people you love so much. And I've seen many, many of you go through times of immense heartache, immense suffering, immense struggle and difficulty. And yet I've seen this passage to be true. You were in the fire. You were in the heat. But he didn't let you wilt. He didn't let you wither. You didn't dry up. You didn't burn up in the fiery trial. He was with you. The promise held true. You all have been an example to me. So he's our, he's our protection by day, but also, look, he's our protection by night. Now, I've never thought of the moon as being so dangerous, but of course, this could be referring to just the evil that happens at night, um, but it also could be thought of or a reference to what people used to think, and some people thought that the moon had potential to cause mental illness, a belief that led to our word lunatic from the Latin word luna. So this verse seems to be promising that God will protect you from a moonstruck lunacy. And I don't know about you, but I really like that idea. I like the idea of God being our protector, the protector even of our minds. Now, of course, that does not mean that Christians won't suffer from mental illness. We very much will and do. That doesn't mean that Christians can't lose their sanity. They very much can. I've known several that have. It's very, very possible. What it means is the same truth as before. God will be with you in it. Um, I love to think of the example of Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked, prideful king in the Old Testament. And God removed his sanity from him, remember? So that he ate grass like an ox. He's this powerful king, and God says, I'm going to take your sanity. <laughs> and he just takes it, and he becomes like an animal, and then God restores it. And I find that passage to be so comforting because it's like God holds even my very frail psyche and sanity in his very hands. So if I lose it, he's with me. He can take it and he can restore it. It's in his hands. So we need not fear things like dementia and Alzheimer's, depression and anxiety. He's with us through those things as well. Those are places where God is with us as well, protecting us even in those times. And I've heard lots of Christian testimonies of this, of people who have dementia or Alzheimer's, severe Alzheimer's. They can't remember their own name. They can't remember loved ones. But guess what? They can remember word-for-word word hymns that they've sung. Haven't you heard testimonies of that? Isn't that remarkable? Why is that true? It can only be because of their keeper. Their keeper is with them, enabling them to remember those things. So God is our keeper in that he's our foundation. He's our keeper in that he's our watchguard. He's our keeper in that he's our protector. And finally, he's our keeper in that he's our preserver. Look at verses 7 and 8. 
The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming forth. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So here we see God as our preserver. He's the one who keeps us from all evil. And, you know, last week we talked about temptation. And I realized, um, I think many of you realize this too, that it's very scary when you realize how prone to temptation you are, right? When you realize how weak you are, nothing makes me feel more weak and helpless than when I'm tempted. It's like, oh, my goodness, this is, this is awful. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to feel that weak. It really focuses our help back on God, but this is a really powerful promise that even in the midst of those temptations, even in the midst of that evil that surrounds you and wants to tempt you, God is preserving you. He's keeping you. In John 10, 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, isn't that comforting? No one will snatch them out of my hand. Remember, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's keeping you. He's the one preserving you. This is why we say when we come to receive the elements of communion— um, sometimes we don't have enough time to spit all the words out when you receive your bread, but we're, we, we try to say, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken for you, may it preserve you for everlasting life. We need to be preserved, don't we, friends? We need to be preserved. We need help, or we're going to fall off the wagon. We need God to help us, to preserve us, to keep us. We're like wandering sheep, but we remember, he's a better shepherd than we are bad sheep. He goes and gets us and preserves us, and keeps us. And boy, have I experienced this in my own life, just through all the years of trying to follow Jesus, through all the doubts, through all the struggles with sin, through all the anxieties, and fears, and failures. He's been so faithful. He hasn't let me wander off a cliff somewhere. He consistently goes and gets me. And no doubt you all have stories like that as well. You're wandering off into some awful danger, and the Lord, time and time again, went and got you, put you on his back, and brought you back home to God where you're safe. I grew up learning about this doctrine from a Calvinist point of view. If you're not familiar with Calvin, um, the, the five points of Calvin, they, uh, Calvinism they talk about as the tulip, right? Um, and this is the, the P in the tulip, the preservation of the saints, basically what this passage is saying here. And what it means is that those who belong to God, the doctrine is those who belong to God, God's going to keep and preserve until the day of salvation. Now, I recognize there's tons of debate in Christian circles on this, and I'm not here to settle that debate today, by the way. Um, You know, can a Christian lose their salvation? Is it once saved, always saved? I don't have um, all the answers for you on that, but I think actually those questions get us off base here and actually move us away from scriptures that are meant to be immensely comforting to to Christians who are weak, who are really trying, but need help. And the basis of these verses is, look, the Lord is your help. He's your keeper. He's going to preserve your life. He's going to keep you. This is not talking about people that say, oh yeah, I prayed a prayer one day, and so yeah, I'm good. I can go and live however I want. That's not what these verses are addressing. They're addressing Christians who are struggling with their own weakness, struggling with sin struggles, and they're saying, look, God's going to keep you. He's going to finish this good work that he started in you. He's going to preserve you. So God is our preserver. He's our keeper in that he's our foundation. He's our keeper in that he's our watch guard. He's our keeper in that he's our protector. He's our keeper in that he's our preserver. Now, you might be saying, okay, Pastor Dave, 
Um, I get it, but where's the proof that God is my keeper like this? And how do I know that he's this invested in my life? How do I know that he cares this much about me? How do I know that all these wonderful promises are true for me? Well, it's Lent, and so this is the time of year where we prepare our hearts for Easter, for Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we need to do only what the psalmist says here in verse 1 and lift our eyes to the hills, the same hills that the psalmist would have been lifting his eyes to, right? Because as you remember, he's coming up to Jerusalem and he's looking to these hills. And one of the hills that would have been sitting just outside of Jerusalem was a hill called Golgotha. It was a horrible hill, a a place of torment, a place of torture, a place of execution. It was called Golgotha because that means the place of the skull. And that's the place where our Jesus was crucified between two thieves. He died there in our place for our sins as our substitute because we were utterly helpless to help ourselves. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again from the dead to conquer Satan, sin, and death for us. So now that hill, Golgotha, that once ominous sign is now a powerful reminder to us of just how much God loves you, that he would stop at nothing to keep you, to rescue you, to protect you, to preserve your life. It reminds us forever that our sin is paid for. It reminds us that Jesus helped us in the most important way. And now that's the place we look for our ultimate help time and time again. Where does our help come from? We lift our eyes to the hills, to Golgotha. That's where our help comes from, what Jesus did on the cross. I don't know where this message finds you today. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And maybe today the Holy Spirit's working on your heart saying, yes, you need help in the worst way. I would encourage you, run to Jesus for your help. Don't try to do it yourself. Don't try to take care of this on your own. Nothing else will work. We can all testify to that. Those of us who are here as believers, there's going to be people up here to pray for you. We would love to introduce you to the life and the freedom of following Jesus and leaning on him and his help day in and day out. For the rest of us who are Christians, it's a simple message, like I said, not complicated. But I'm going to ask you one more time, Life Church, where does your help come from? From the Lord, nowhere else. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to make that true in our hearts. Amen? Holy Spirit, thank you for this reminder. We need to be reminded, Lord, so many times. uh, We see that in Scripture. We're prone to forgetting the most basic things. And on top of being reminded, Lord, we need power to apply it. Would you teach us now what this means, that the Lord and the Lord only is where we look to for our help. We love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.